Dogs don't have hobbies. It's not clear that dogs need hobbies, but they don't have them. They have a surplus of time. A well-cared-for, beloved dog has hours to sit around doing nothing, and they're pretty good at sitting around doing nothing. They can deal with the surplus of time with no problem. It's interesting to note that dogs have a big problem dealing with a surplus of food. Obesity is an epidemic among dogs in the United States because people are feeding their dogs too much, and dogs don't know what to do with a surplus of food. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Benedicti, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. The biggest shift I've found is now my own stories and the stories that I really want to tell are bubbling to the surface. I can't stop seeing them. Whether you're just starting out or you're an experienced storyteller, this is a place where your stories will get better in a very short time, guaranteed. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. Find out more at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. I don't really want to talk about dogs, but I do want to talk about surplus. Because surplus is the key ingredient to culture. For a really long time, most human beings have been lucky enough to have at least a little bit of surplus, that we have enough food to survive on, and after that, we have extra, extra time, extra food. Marshall Salins, in his breakthrough book about the economics of being a caveman, pointed out that it's probable that Traditional hunter-gatherer societies worked for a few hours a day to find enough to live on and spent the rest of the time creating culture, talking with each other, grooming each other, hanging out, lying in the sun, developing hobbies. I want to argue that we have culture because we decided that it was useful to put our surplus to work. And the question is, how do we put our surplus to work? And what are we going to do with our surplus going forward? Now, it's difficult to talk about surplus because we live in a culture that has spent billions or trillions of dollars persuading us that we don't have enough, that we don't have a fancy enough house, that we don't have a car or a nice enough car, that we're not getting ahead, that in fact, everywhere we look, we're reminded that we are not in surplus, that we are in scarcity, that the nature of the industrial economy was to train us to believe that we were in scarcity. A hundred years ago, the typical family in the United States 
the mom, the dad, the kids, they probably had two or three pairs of pants, two or three pairs of shoes, and that was it. That industrialists in the 1910s and 20s had a crisis. You can look it up. Their crisis was that they were very concerned that new factories were making so much stuff so cheap that people would run out of a desire to buy it. That creating demand, demand for what we consider everyday objects, that was their most important goal. Well, we have totally passed that line. That we have gotten to the point where just about everybody who has had contact with mass media of any kind around the world has been triggered into a feeling of scarcity, not abundance. But back to this idea of surplus. So you've got a bunch of reindeer hanging out in Northern Europe. They have enough to eat. They don't develop hobbies. While they may have something that looks like a culture, it comes and goes. It's evanescent. As soon as the reindeer scatter, it starts over again. They don't leave artifacts behind. That when we see animals that create a tool or any clues that perhaps there was a culture, we are shocked because it's mostly humans, mostly humans who have decided to put their spare time to work, not only connect to one another in the short term, but create things that last. Why would we create things that last? Well, it might be fun, but it's entirely possible it's because it creates a ratchet. And that ratchet is that spending our surplus on resources that improve productivity or civility or efficiency creates more surplus. That once we get hooked on what surplus can create, the culture itself wants to create more of it. And so the cycle begins. Why bother learning how to read? Learning how to read is a huge investment of time and effort and perhaps money. But after you learn to read, you are much more efficient at gaining information than people who don't know how to read. That efficiency makes you more productive. That productivity helps you get paid more. Getting paid more lets you get more stuff or have more freedom, and so the cycle continues. We teach our kids to read because we want our kids to have some of the benefits that we have had that came from investing our surplus wisely. A family invests part of its surplus in the summer to put food in cans so that when winter comes, they will have food. Squirrels do the same thing, but humans figured out how to do it at scale. So now they're not just putting food by for themselves, they're going to put food by for their neighbors, for the town, for the city for the nation, that suddenly Heinz or Del Monte is in business taking the farm surplus of today, investing effort, and turning it into something that creates value in the future. And what about writing lyrics for a song? What about coming up with a joke? The thing is, once you come up with a joke, you only get to laugh at it once, but now you have a joke. You can share that joke. You get a benefit from sharing that joke. You get status or connection. That joke makes someone else happy, even though they didn't have to invent it. And then it gets to the next person, and then it gets to the next person. That if we expend our surplus in the moment to close the door because it's windy out, 
then everybody else in the restaurant benefits from the fact that we invested our surplus to create something for other people. And so now you're starting to see what I'm getting at here, is that culture is created because we had some spare time, some spare corn, some spare resources to invest in making things better for ourselves, perhaps, or for others going forward. One of the largest ratchets in the history of this idea of putting surplus to work is engineering, the science of engineering, the habit, the process, the method of figuring out how to make metal, figuring out how to build a bridge, figuring out how to pave a road. Because paving a road or building a bridge, it doesn't pay for itself in weeks or months or even years. It might take decades. It's entirely possible that the people who built the interstate highway system died long before it was in the black. But this investment made by who exactly paid dividends to huge numbers of people. So now we get to the idea of collective action. Collective action in which not one person or three people or five people on their own would choose to invest their surplus to do something that would benefit everyone, but that we created the culture of organized government and the culture of taxation to go with it. And we willingly pay our taxes, not because we're afraid we're going to go to jail, but because we know that this use of our surplus will come back to us many times over. You are listening to me on the internet. Vint, Surf, and others invested years of their lives to building what became the internet in the 60s and the 70s. And it's only because we spent surplus then that we have what we have now, that we are building on ideas and infrastructure that came before. This engineering mindset created new opportunities and unexpected windfalls of surplus. One day, a couple hundred years ago, they dug some oil out of the ground. And those fossil fuels, which had been there for millions and millions of years, it turns out that they can do work for us. And so we take some of the surplus that was left over on the earth millions of years ago and put it to use moving a vehicle around or turning it into plastic. Here's where the questions begin. A billionaire or a 10x billionaire or a 50x billionaire, are they putting their surplus to good use? A company, a company that made an extraordinary profit, perhaps because it has monopoly power. They make a profit. A profit is another word for a surplus. They are charging more then it costs them all in, counting overhead, to make what we bought. Where does that profit go? If you're a shareholder of that organization, are you happy with how that surplus is being invested so that the next cycle will work just as well? Where did AOL or Western Union put their surplus for all of those years? When I was at Yahoo, there was an embarrassingly large surplus a small group of people were getting paid a lot. There was a lot of surplus because value was created by the ideas that had been brought to the world by the Yahoo folks. Where to put the surplus? 
Should you put it toward buying eBay, buying Netscape, buying Google? All three of them were on the table. What would have happened to the internet, to Yahoo shareholders, to the people who were counting on Yahoo if the surplus had been spent one way or another? Back to this idea of the 50x billionaire. A 50x billionaire can only ride on one private jet at a time. How to spend the surplus. A trip across the country in first class with unlimited amounts of comfort costs a few thousand dollars. A trip across the country in a private jet might cost $200,000. Surplus spent. What was received for the surplus? When we say to a government, do not tax me because I do not like the fact that the government is spending tax money, the question is, what will we spend the surplus on instead? That when we believe that surplus left alone, surplus neglected, leads to surplus lost, we have to think really hard about how are we spending our surplus, because it is our surplus, all of us. That's what the culture created. That the systems that we are putting in place, whether they are systems for fossil fuels, systems for solar energy, systems for building connection, systems for new technologies, systems for education, they all use up our surplus and they are creating an asset as they do. So when we look at a school, do we say about this elementary school that is underserving the people who are attending it, why isn't the school more efficient? Or do we say, why are we wasting the surplus? We created for these children hours every day for them to learn something, and we are wasting it. What would happen if we invested more of our mutual surplus to create a forward cycle of educated people who are ready to engage in civil discourse to figure out the next opportunity to make things better? Yeah, it's true that dogs don't have hobbies. They waste their time surplus every single day. I don't think that Baxter, my wonder pup, feels badly about that. I think he's fairly unaware that he has a surplus or that he is wasting it. But we as humans, once it's pointed out to us, well, then it becomes incumbent on us to do something about it. There's an organization in India and a few other countries called Water Health International. Water Health International shows up in a small village that does not have clean water. Now, if there is no clean water in your village, you probably have to walk two hours a day just to get water. And once you get the water, it's probably not that clean, which means that you and other people in your family are spending a lot of time being ill. Not a lot of benefit to this. Someone comes up with the idea of filtering water. Someone comes up with the technology to do it inexpensively. Someone comes up with an organization, an institution that can build out that technology at low cost. And someone comes up with a business where they can sell a jerry can filled with this clean water for just a few rupees. Now, when this institution shows up in this village, more surplus is created. We used surplus to create the systems, and the systems create more surplus. Because suddenly the people in that village don't have to walk to get water. But even better, the kids in that village aren't getting sick, and neither are their parents. 
which means that the next invention is going to come from them. This surplus continues, generation after generation. Every person listening to this podcast has more resources than the last king of France did, more access to more leverage and more well-being than royalty did just a 100 years ago. What does that mean? It means that we can squander our surplus, burn it up, waste it, or we can invest it one more time. And once we see that we have the opportunity to invest surplus, it's essential to do something worthwhile because the opportunity cost is huge. Surplus that isn't invested is surplus wasted. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I truly love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We got two questions arriving within 20 hours of each other that are closely aligned. I'll take them as a pair. My question to you is about a small viable audience. So I followed your advice um, last year and rather than working and creating stories and content for everybody, you know, every company on, on planet Earth, um, I decided to focus on hoteliers. So I created a podcast for hotels. I created um, obviously ev- everything, all my communication uh, is t- targeting hoteliers um, in Europe, well, uh, in London, uh, where I'm based and in, in Europe. But the challenge that I find is that a lot of hoteliers, maybe 85% of them, they don't care about stories. They don't want to create stories. And I, I, I'm wondering, is it me um, that can't influence them or is it um, they're just not interested? They're interested in you know direct bookings. How do we increase sales? And uh, who cares about content or who cares about uh, meaningful stories and finding brand purpose? So, did I? My question to you is: Did I choose the wrong audience, um, or is it me? I am doing something wrong, and uh, I'm not convincing them, uh, influencing them, you know, to create stories. Because my intention is to generally help them, but you know, I, I go to meetings, to sales meetings, and you know, I try to explain and show them an example of uh, of a great hotel that we work with, and say, look, these are the results, and yet. I, I struggle to convince them. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah. Exactly. You're seeing the challenge of the smallest viable audience, which is not the part about it being small, 
but the part about it being viable. Small is fine if it's working, but what it means to have a smallest viable audience is that you are eagerly and generously saying to many people, it's not for you. If you have the best pizza place in this little neighborhood in Akron, Ohio, it is not for people in Cleveland. It is not for people in Milan. It is for people in this neighborhood. Well, that's obvious. People aren't going to fly from Milan to have a piece of pizza in your little pizza place in Akron. But when we make something on the internet, when we write something, when we put an idea in the world, it's really easy to get feedback from people who say, well, that's not for me. And what we have to do is have the guts to say, you're right. Here is some other alternatives. Our competitors, our peers, they've made this instead. Go try that. But for our people, this, this is special. This matters. So if you are finding that no one is in your smallest viable audience, that you have no true fans, that nobody is willing to cross the street for what you're doing and what you're making, you need to make something better. You can't use the excuse of people don't get it because it's fine that most people don't get the joke, but someone needs to. So the hard work begins by saying to the people it's not for, sorry, it's not for you, but it continues because the benefit of that choice is there are some people who are going to say, wow, this is exactly what I was hoping for. That's what we need to focus on. That is what gives us the freedom to do our work. Hi, Seth. Uh, this is Evan from Portland, Oregon. I'm struggling with leadership in my job right now. I'm not sure if as a good leader, do I need to be able to lead anyone and everyone? Or does a good leader first select the people that he believes have the right qualities and then continues to gain their trust? In other words, am I failing as a leader if I cannot gain the trust of a team member or maybe we're not just right for each other? Over the years, I've learned a lot from you, so thanks for all you're doing. So following up on the previous question, it's about enrollment. If the people you seek to lead don't want to go where you are going, then they are not people you can lead. It is very, very rare that you can be a leader for everyone. Because to be a leader means to make change. It means that you are going somewhere. Everyone rarely wants to go somewhere. So the most important first step in leadership, after you figure out where to go, is who wants to come with me? How do I earn enrollment? And yes, if you're in an organization, people might not be enrolled. One of the reasons why traditional organizations usually falter when technology or something else changes the landscape is because the people who went to that organization didn't sign up to be part of a rapidly changing thing. They signed up for a sinecure. They signed up for something that felt safe. And so 20 plus years ago, I spoke to the newspaper publishers of America and I described a future of how the media landscape would change. In many ways, I was correct, but it doesn't matter that they heard me because they weren't listening. They weren't listening because they didn't go into the newspaper business so they could turn the newspaper into something else. They went into the newspaper business because they wanted to be in the newspaper business. 
And that's our challenge when we seek to lead. Our challenge is to find people who will voluntarily enroll in following us. And the way we can make that happen is by being really clear about where we're going and why we're going there. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. You know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.